But today we come to another part of our worship service, and a lot of times people separate in their mind, well, we have the music part of the service, and that's worship, and then we come to the the sermon and and whatever happens after that in our response to it. But in reality, it is all an act of worship before God. And so we have not finished our worship. We are continuing our worship by coming to His Word. So I would invite you to take a moment right there where you're at before we begin to look to God's Word. And I would like to ask you, just take a minute and say, Lord, help me to worship you by the way I hear your Word and by my response to it. Would you do that? Just bow your heads, and in the quietness of your own heart, just do that in these moments. Father, indeed, it is our desire to honor you. Father, indeed, it is our desire to worship you, to praise you, to give you glory in every aspect of our chapel service. Father, it is our desire to worship you not only when we gather in worship times like this, but Lord, to worship you by the way we live our lives and by the way we conduct ourselves day in and day out. But Father, there is a special moment whenever your people gather together around your word. There is no higher worship than to humble ourselves before the authority of scripture and to let your spirit take your word and apply it to the hearts of your children. God, we ask that you would help us to listen in an attitude of worship today. But Father, I pray that our worship will not even end there. But Lord, that we would worship you by the way we respond to your word. James tells us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so Father, I pray that we would even determine now before we even hear your word that however your word speaks to us today, how whatever your spirit does to apply your word to our lives today, that our answer will simply be yes. That we will honor you, that we will worship you by the way we respond. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, worship practices vary quite a bit. Among religious groups of all kinds and even among those who would name the name of Christ and call themselves Christians, and even among those who would be evangelical Christians or or Bible-believing Christians, if you want that term, and, and you will go from one place to another, and you will find that worship practices actually are different from one place to another. Sometimes it's the order of service. Sometimes it's the things that are included in that order of service. I pastored a church for a while in North Carolina that had a very specific order of service that they had followed for about 200 years. And uh, I had not been their pastor very long, and we uh, had opened the service with singing, and uh, I was just uh, really worshiping the Lord in that moment and just felt led to step up and pray. And so I just stepped up to the podium and and led in in a prayer, and all of a sudden, while I'm praying, I hear this shuffling and rumbling and didn't know what was going on, and I looked up, and right before me were two of my deacons holding offering plates with their mouths open like, did we sleep through the three songs we're supposed to sing before the offering? Because they were not used to anybody praying until offering time, and so they had completely missed it, and they thought they had slept through it because they were just so involved in the, in the regular practice of worship. 
And uh, I looked at them, and they looked at me, and everybody in the congregation was going, <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden I just said, uh, well, you're here. We might as well receive the offering. Go ahead. <laughs> and so we, we did. But then, you know, every church that I have ever been in, every church I've ever pastored, had different practices or different orders in the way that they would do worship. And some hold those orders very strongly, and some like to change it up from time to time. But there are also other practices that maybe we're not familiar with. And as we grow up and as we move out and as we begin to go to college, as we begin to, to visit different churches, we begin to see different worship practices. The question is, are all worship practices pleasing to God? That is a deep question. It's one that I'm afraid we do not ask very often. Rather, what we tend to do, at least in the United States of America today, is develop worship practices that are pleasing to us. And that doesn't, that, that's not a particular style. For instance, in the church I mentioned in North Carolina, their practice was extremely pleasing to them, and the fact that the new preacher messed it up was not a good thing. We got through it, but it wasn't a good thing. But it was less about whether or not it's pleasing to God than it's pleasing to us. This is the way we've always done it. Others, there is certain styles of music. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I really developed a worship service that was fitting to me, all the music would be country gospel. <laughs> and only a few of you would come once in a while. <laughs> but the question is not whether it's pleasing to me. The question is whether it's pleasing to God. I want to submit to you today that not all worship practices are pleasing to God. I want to give you an example of some that have been written about that are unbiblical practices that go on. For instance, falling backwards onto the floor, laughing uncontrollably, barking like dogs. Some practices, uh, one particular uh, reader or writer, excuse me, wrote this. He said that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's like a jolt of electricity, a remarkable tingling, electrifying sensation that starts to spread from your feet through your legs to your head and through your arms and down to your fingers. Another preacher describing a worship practice that he was involved in said this. He said, I punched a woman in the stomach in an attempt to heal her because God told me to do it. Another person said that there was um, a deaf man that, that he wanted to heal and he, the, the man, uh, he hit him so hard, he slapped him so hard that he fell to the ground. Another one said this, he said that uh, people fall over violently. He says that it's, it's like magic. This is the preacher speaking. He waves his coat or his hand. He blows on them. At other times, he pushes them backward with considerable force. Whatever the case may be, he does it in order so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. There are many things 
that we could go on and on with of practices that are out there. These are just a few. And most of us would say, well, that's pretty extreme. We wouldn't want to say that somebody should hit somebody in the stomach. Wouldn't want to say that somebody should slap somebody so hard they knock them on the ground. We might be suspect of some of the other activities like barking like a dog. What does that have to do with worship? Laughing not at something funny that the preacher said, but laughing with nothing funny going on, just uncontrollably in the middle of a worship service that you're unable to control yourself. Are those practices pleasing to God? How can we know? How can we know what worship practices are pleasing to God and those that are not pleasing to God? I want you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel in chapter 13. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we have a story about a king, the first king of Israel, Saul. And in that story, we find some insights that can help us discern worship that is not pleasing to God and worship that is pleasing to God. While you're turning to 1 Samuel 13, let me remind you of Saul's story. Saul never set out to become king. It was never his desire to be in that position of leadership. In fact, the nation of Israel actually received their first king in rebellion to God. In fact, they went to Samuel and they said, Samuel, after you're getting old. Your sons are not really following God. We want a king like the other countries around us have a king. When, Saul, when Samuel took that to God, God said, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as king over Israel. Let them know that. And I want you to tell them that if I give them a king, what a king will do. And so Samuel does so, and the people insisted that they wanted a king. And so God sought for the man that he would choose, and he chose a humble man. In fact, Saul, even after he was confronted by Samuel one day, and Samuel clearly showed him that it was the work of God in a three or four different ways, but he told him, you are the one God has chosen to be king, and yet on the day of coronation, he couldn't even be found. He was out. He wasn't coming. He was hiding, the Bible tells us, because he didn't think he could be king. At one point, he actually told Samuel, he said, listen, I'm from the smallest tribe of all of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And my father's house is the smallest of the house. And I'm, I'm a nobody. I can't be king. And yet Samuel said, God has chosen you. And so ultimately, he submitted to the will of God and he began well. He began dependent upon God. He began in a humble way saying, this job is too big for me, but God has called me to it, and therefore I will do it in his strength. And then a little time went by. By the time he had been king a few years, he had a regular army of about 3,000 people. 2,000 of them were with him. 1,000 was with his son, Jonathan, who was their captain. The Philistines begin to cause difficulties for them, and it is clear that they are about to go to war. 
And there is where we pick up with the story in chapter 13 and beginning in verse 7. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. They were overwhelmed by the enemy against them. They were outnumbered, and they were afraid. Look again at the text of Scripture in verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is a tragic story for Saul and it's not the last. In fact, over the next several chapters, what we find is Saul continually struggling to follow the Lord and to reject the Lord, to follow the Lord's commands and reject the Lord's commands. But increasingly, he does his own thing in his own strength that pleased him. Often, he did it in a way that he thought he could, he could uh, put it out as he was doing it for God, that he was doing it on behalf of God, all of those things. But he continually began to make his own choices and decide how he was going to serve God. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell us today that the fact of the matter is we cannot serve God on our own terms. It is not for us to decide, God, this is what we want to do. This is how we'll do it. We are to serve God on his terms. As we look at this passage of scripture today, I want us to understand two things that will help you and I to understand this text. First of all, and then secondly, to see how it applies to the question before us today. How do you know what kind of worship pleases God? That's the question. To understand from this text what we need to do, number one, we need to consider the source of authority for true worship of God. We need to consider the source of authority for the true worship of God. In this case, Saul chose to be his own authority, and we will see that in the text. But secondly, I want you to see with me today that not only do we need to consider the source of authority of the true worship of God, but we need to consider the consequences of false worship of God. 
And we see both of those revealed in the passage that we have just read. So first of all, look with me at the text and consider the source of authority for the worship of God. Worship that is pleasing to God. Again, pick up with me in verse 7. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, Saul was king over Israel. However, God's word is clear, and for time today, we're not going to go back and look at it, but you take uh, your Old Testament classes with Dr. Ingalls, and you will learn about the law, and God had established the who and who was not to offer sacrifices. And while Saul was the political leader and the representative of God to the people of Israel in that way, He was not to offer sacrifice according to the law. Yet what we find in this text is that the experience of the moment took over. It was a difficult experience that Saul was in. The circumstances were challenging. We just read about it there. He is sitting here in Gilgal. The the enemy is coming near. They are ready to engage. They are outnumbered. He knows it's bad. The people are beginning to fear. It said right there in verse 7 that they were following him but trembling. And then as he waits the seven days and Samuel had not come to offer a sacrifice and to petition the protection of God upon his people as they went to war. The circumstances were difficult. The experience was there. I could just think of Saul struggling in himself. Listen, I know this isn't the prescribed manner, but the fact of the matter is, is you are not in my shoes. You have not experienced what I have experienced. And the experience here is we're outnumbered. The experience here, the people who are following me are trembling. And now with every day that Samuel delays in coming, the people are beginning to to get so fearful that they are starting to leave. My, my 2,000 that are with me are getting smaller by the moment. My experience is what is important. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you today that experience cannot guide us to understand clearly what it means to worship God in a pleasing way. Experience fails us every time. We can have true experiences that are not, that are very real, but they're not right experiences. Those of you who have had me in, in uh, a pastoral counseling class and uh, maybe another class or two have heard me tell about an experience that happened when I was pastoring in North Carolina. I had a, a church member who contacted uh, my secretary and wanted to schedule an appointment with me, and so she came. And so I have always had a policy that I don't counsel someone of the opposite sex unless uh, there's someone else with us, either either uh, my wife, preferably, or my uh, 
my administrative assistant, or uh, maybe uh, the person has a family member who is with them. And so we set this up on this particular day, and, and the lady came in to see us, and I was behind my desk, and she and my wife were seated across from me at the desk, and uh, she, uh, we, we prayed, and then I said, well, how can I help you today? And she said, well, I need your help. And I said, okay, and uh, how can we help? And she said, well, my husband doesn't believe me. And I said, okay. Uh, she said, well, and my children, they don't believe me. And I said, well, what is it exactly they don't believe you about? And she said, about what happened to me Sunday at church. And I said, oh, well, what happened to you Sunday at church? And she said, well, you know. And then she looked at Cindy sitting next to her and says, and Cindy, you know, you, you two are probably the only ones in the church that know it. You're the only one spiritual enough to have seen it. And I said, well, remind us, let's talk about that. And she said, well, why? You, you guys know what happened. You saw it. And I said, well, you know, I've had a really busy week and my memory's not too good. Would you just kind, kind of remind us, help us? Well, okay, we were, we were singing and worshiping God and most of us had our hands raised. I had my hands raised and all of a sudden it happened. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, I became an angel. And I said, you became an angel? And she said, yes. And I said, well, describe that for me. How did that happen? And she said, well, I was just praising God and my hands were up and all of a sudden I began to feel warm all over and, and then I looked and I was transparent. I could see straight through my arm. And I looked at my other arm and I could see straight through it. And I looked down and I could see straight through. In fact, I went like this and I could see the people behind me. And that's when I knew I was no longer human. I had become an angel. But I've been trying to tell my husband and my kids, and they don't believe me. Well, I don't have time today to tell you how we walked her through that process. We did. But at one point, when she was beginning to understand she did not become an angel, she looked at me and said, Pastor Mark, I know I had that experience. What happened to me? And I, I want, want you to hear how I responded. I called her by name and I said, you can have a real experience that is a wrong experience. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to determine truth by experience, then we're in big trouble because nobody has the same experiences. And experiences come and go, and some experiences are good, and some experiences are wrong. Saul made his decision first by his experience. And experience cannot determine what worship is pleasing to God. But secondly, I want you to see with me another truth, and that is the intellect cannot. Intellect alone cannot determine what kind of worship is pleasing to God. We see his intellect go into, go into play. Look here with me uh, as, as we continue in the text. It says, Now it happened, as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he may greet him. So he just finished the sacrifice, and here comes Samuel. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, 
Well, when, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Stop there for just a minute. Notice exactly what happens immediately. Now Saul decides he's going to use his intellect and he's going to offer a defense. He's going to to reason through this intellectually. And surely Samuel will understand when he understands the circumstances. And so he begins to reason with him. He said, listen, let me tell you the reason that I did this. I, I offered the sacrifice, but this is why. And, and actually he starts with the reasons why. And, and they're good reasons. Listen, he says, the people were scattering from me. They were leaving. Uh, we waited for you, but you, you didn't come. He said, then I knew the Philistines had gathered at Michmash, and so I knew that they were about to attack us, and we hadn't worshipped God. We had not offered a sacrifice. We had not been able to offer our prayers of supplication because you weren't here. And so I had no other choice but to sacrifice as we did. Listen. From a human perspective, I remember the first time I ever thought through this story as a kid. I thought, well, Saul makes sense. He does. It makes good sense. I mean, Samuel wasn't there. He was supposed to have been there by now. And I mean, it looked like any minute the Philistines are coming and they need to pray. They need to ask God's blessing. They need to offer a sacrifice. Before they go to war, I mean, if Samuel's not here, maybe, maybe something happened to him along the way. Maybe he's not going to come, and we're going to get crushed, so I'm going to do this. He was intellectually reasoning it out. Ladies and gentlemen, there are only four ways to go to truth. One, people try to, one group of people try to get there by experience. Another one builds on that experience by saying, listen, I've got to take those experiences and reason through them. I need to use my intellect. I need to tap into that brain and that alone, and I will come to understand what I should and shouldn't do simply by my reasoning. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget that our reasoning has fallen. And sometimes we can reason something out and we can convince ourselves that this is of God and this is something I should do, and then later we discover it was exactly opposite of what we should have done. Saul, first of all, attempted with his experience. Secondly, he attempted with his intellect. But experience and intellect cannot tell us what kind of worship is pleasing to God. But then I want you to see a third thing that Saul attempts. He moves beyond just his intellect, beyond his experience, and he considers his emotion. I want you to look at the very end of that last verse we were reading. It's, he says, therefore... I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. He said, I felt compelled. I was compelled to do this. The Hebrew word there actually means that it was a strong compulsion. It actually means that he was forced to do it. I was forced to do this. In other words, in the moment, my emotions said this is the only course of action. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the most popular statement out there in our culture today. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. 
All of those kinds of statements are about your emotions compelling you in your decision. But God's word says, don't follow your heart, lead it. That's what God's word teaches. He, here, he used every form of decision-making that can be used, but the most important one. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with examining our experiences. We should. We should look at our circumstances. There certainly is nothing wrong with developing good logic skills. We want you to develop the mind of a scholar here. We want you to learn to think critically. We should reason well. And I want you to hear me closely. There is nothing wrong with emotions in your worship of God as long as you're leading your emotions. They're not leading you. In fact, we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. It encompasses all of that, but they are instruments in the worship of God they are not the authority in, in the worship of God. I want you to understand today that experience cannot tell us what kind of worship is pleasing to God. Intellect cannot tell us what kind of worship is, is pleasing to God. Emotion cannot tell us. But I want you to see that Scripture must, must be the authority. Scripture must be our guide. I want you to notice it with me in the text. Look in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly, but now look what he says. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. Notice, jump all the way down to the end where we, where we stopped reading. Jump down to the end of verse 14. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand that the only way that you and I can know what kind of worship is pleasing to God, the only way that you and I can know what kind of decisions we ought to make in our daily life, the only way that you and I can know the kind of practices that we should be engaged in, whether when we're gathered in a service like this or when we're all alone in our house, is if we base it on the authority of the Word of God. We know the first, uh, the second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally all scripture is God breathed. This is his word. It is not ours. It is not Paul's. It is not Samuel's. This is the word of God that he gave through them for us. It is the final authority and it does not make mistakes. Our intellect can make a mistake. Just go take a test. You take enough of them, and you'll find that out. Uh, earlier this summer, I got to see my oldest niece. Her name is Sherry. And we were reminiscing about when she was in high school. Uh, Sherry never saw anything on her report card but an A her entire life, with one exception. And her mother called me, and she was in the same curriculum that I had been through in high school, and she says, by any chance, do you remember anything about ACE biology? 
And I said, Sherry failed the test, didn't she? And she said, how'd you know? And I said, I know of no one who hasn't failed pace 113. Tell her to get ready because she will also fail pace 117. And she said, you're kidding me. And I said, I'm not smart, Marcia, but all the smart people I know failed those two. I failed those two and two others and had to redo them. And she said, would you please talk to Sherry? She is devastated. Now, after she got through those two paces, she never again saw anything but an A. She has uh, been through many, several degrees in, in uh, nursing and so forth. Uh, it's funny that she uh, dove, dove into biology after that. But uh, she actually is, is a very, has a very strong mind. But folks, I want you to understand that there is not a perfect intellect on the face of the earth. We cannot trust it to tell us truth. And certainly our emotions, our own emotions change numerous times in an hour. We can't trust our emotions to guide us to truth. It must be the authority of the word of God. Do you remember that verse in 2 Timothy 3? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I, I stopped there, but let's remember the rest of it. And it's profitable, literally it does something, for doctrine telling us what to believe, for doctrine for reproof to tell us when we're wrong, for correction to tell us how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness to tell us how to stay right. That the man of God may be perfect, that means complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can I tell you something? You don't need a false religious practice that is outside of the word of God to equip you to do anything for God. You need the word of God and the word of God alone. God's word guides us into all truth. And his spirit takes his word and reminds us of it. That's exactly what we see Jesus saying in John 14, 15, and 16. That when the spirit comes, he will remind you of the things I have taught you. The spirit of God will never do anything or lead anyone to do anything contrary to his word. Saul may have had the worst circumstances in the world. His experience may have told him, just go ahead and offer the sacrifice. He may have reasoned it out that this is an exception to God's law. Emotionally, certainly, he felt compelled. But folks, Saul had the written and the spoken word of God and knew, according to God's word, he was not to do this. And he chose to do it anyway. He let his experience, his intellect, and his emotion determine his practice, and it ruined him. Ladies and gentlemen, you search scripture. I am not the authority. 
No other person is the authority. The reason I love the Anabaptists so much is because they said, this is what we believe, but if you can show us in God's word that we're wrong, we will change. We're not the authority. We don't, we don't tell the word of God what to do. We don't read into the text of scripture. We don't pull a verse here and a verse there out to make some theology we want. We stand under the authority of scripture, and if scripture says I'm wrong, then I am wrong. And therefore, the scripture is not only inerrant, but it is sufficient to give us everything that we need. It is sufficient to guide us into all truth. It is sufficient to guide us into how to worship God. We need the word of God. I promise you, you search the scripture, you will never, ever, ever find it commanded, prescribed, or even described in a positive light of people being touched, people being surrounded and pushed down, people being blown upon, or any other way to be knocked out. In fact, the Word of God clearly tells us that we are to be in control of our mind. You search you read Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit first came. You read the rest of the book of Acts. You read the epistles and you will not find that kind of false practice. If you want to find it, you've got to go read paganism. If you want to find it, you've got to go look at the ancient Eastern mysticism religions. And we are those who are adopting that practice or messing around by adopting practices that are external to the word of God. And it is wrong. But we can't just understand the authority of Scripture today and leave it at that. What we must understand and what I ask you to consider now is not just the authority of, for deciding what true worship is, but I want you to see in this text the consequences of false worship. Despite Saul's best arguments from experience, intellect, and emotion, I want you to see what happens. Look at verse 12. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom over Israel, uh, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Listen, the consequences for Saul are tragic from this moment to the very end of his life when he falls on his own sword and then asks his servant to finish him off. And everything in between. With only a few highlights, from this moment forward, Paul's trajectory was trouble. He started right, but even in this moment at the correction of God, he hardens his heart and does not turn back. And Samuel says there are consequences to it. First, The first consequence I want you to understand, when we do it our way instead of the word of God's way, one, one's foolishness will be exposed. You will be exposed. 
In the early 1900s, there was a man in the United States of America who had dabbled with the word of God. He had also dabbled with some ancient religions, and he had also studied hypnosis. And he began going around, and he began using the practices of hypnosis to cause people to fall. He did all, all other kinds of things as well, some of which were bib very biblical and some of which were not. He was mixing the truth of Scripture and, and biblical worship with false worship practices and even using some occultic practices in the process. He had a great following in the initial days, but his life ended in tragedy. In fact, he had one tragedy after another. The foolishness of what he had claimed and done was exposed. He ended up in jail. He ended up in and out of jail a couple times, and he ended up completely ruined. I want you to understand that one's foolishness is always exposed. One of the reasons that I have concerns, particularly about this practice, is because I have seen over the last 40 years many people who have gone down that road who when it was all over and they couldn't chase it any longer, or they chased it and it wasn't happening to them anymore, they ended up depressed. Many ended up walking away from God altogether. Some have taken their own life. The foolishness of the activity eventually shows itself. But I also want you to see not only is one's foolishness exposed, but one's position may be lost. Notice what he said to Saul, for the, now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. For the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. He says, listen, Saul, your kingdom would have continued forever, but because you disobey God in this, your kingdom will not continue Folks, that's a, a strong statement. You may be trying to wrap your head around it. Go ahead and try. It'll burst eventually if you try. It, is, it goes into that area of God's foreknowledge. He knows. He knew this would happen. He knew it would. There's no doubt. And yet, the text of Scripture actually says that, Saul, if you had not done this, God would have established your kingdom forever. In other words, Saul had a legitimate choice to either obey God or disobey God. And if he would have obeyed God, even in the midst of the pressure, despite the circumstances, despite his experience, despite his intellect, despite his emotion, if he had done that, then God's hand would have stayed on him and his kingdom would have continued. But now, your kingdom will not continue. There are consequences when we choose to do it our own way. There are consequences when we make our decisions by experience, intellect, and emotion with disregard to the word of God. But then finally, one's position may actually be replaced. And that's what we find a man after his own heart. You know, it's an interesting study if you study First and Second Samuel and even First and Second Chronicles, 
to contrast, compare and contrast David and Saul. They both started right and they both strayed wrong, didn't they? They both messed up. There's no excuse for what David did in taking another man's wife and then having that man killed. There's no excuse for it at all. And there were consequences that he faced, and quite frankly, the whole nation of Israel faced because of it. But when confronted with the truth of his sin, you go read Psalm 51, and you see what David did. Instead of going on about his day, as Saul does in this chapter and for the rest of this, David poured out his heart to God and said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Listen, when we realize we have gone our own way, whether it's in worship practices or whether it's in anything else in life, and God's spirit convicts us through his word of that truth, we have a choice to make. We can either harden our hearts as Saul did, and if we continue in that hardened heart, we will end tragically as Saul ended. But if, like David, when confronted with our sin, we confess our sin to God and we ask his forgiveness, he forgives us, he restores us. David even says in Psalm 51, Then, then shall I teach transgressors your ways. Then I will become a teacher to others. God will use you again if you failed on any front. If you would just confess your sin. My favorite song of the modern times, my favorite song is when God ran. One of my favorite stories from the New Testament is the prodigal son. You know this song. the song. You know the story. The son has gone on. He's done his own thing. He's wasted it all. And one day he comes to his senses and said, I wonder if my dad would hire me as a servant because even his servants are better off than I am. And he goes home humbly to, to his father. And when his father sees him, he runs to meet him. He throws his arms around him. The son says, oh, father, I have sinned against God. And in your sight, I am not worthy to be called your son. And the father says, no, bring the fatted calf. Put a ring on him. Get him some new clothes. My son has come home. And the joy of our father is even when we disobey like Saul, even when we choose to do things our way instead of according to the word of God, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what you have done, you can be restored if you will turn back to the Lord if you will confess your sin before him today. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Where are you at in your walk with God? Maybe like the song, coming back to the heart of worship, you've made worship about other things, about the way it makes you feel about what appeals to you, 
instead of what does God's word teach about worship? If that's where you are, just confess it to him right now. He's ready to forgive. Say, Lord, help me not to make it all about me, all about the experience, all about the emotion, all about my ability to reason it out. But God, let me, let me do things your way according to your word. And he'll restore you today. That's true if you're here in the room. That's true if later when the podcast is post, you're listening to it sometime later today or this week. You can come back to the Lord and he'll restore and he'll use you again. Maybe it has nothing to do with worship for you. Maybe there's some other area of your life where the whole time I was walking through this passage, you're thinking, well, mine wasn't about false worship of offering sacrifices that I wasn't supposed to. Mine is not about jettisoning the biblical pattern of worship. But I have jettisoned some things that God told me, that God's word says I shouldn't do, that I've been doing. That God's word says I should do, but I've not been doing those. And I realize that I too have strayed just in a different way. Then listen, I want you to know that right now, you can be forgiven just like David was. You can be restored. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then if you would just turn to him now with whatever that sin is that God has put upon your heart, his spirit has convicted you of, if you'll just confess it, if you'll just say, Lord, I know that's sin. I shouldn't be doing that. Lord, I know that I've not been doing the things that you tell me I should. Forgive me. I know it's sin. I know it's wrong. If you will confess that to him, then on the authority of his word, not on my authority, I have none, but on the authority of his word, I can tell you that he's forgiven you. Maybe you're listening here in the room or maybe you're listening to the podcast later and you realize through all of this you've been taking God on your own terms all the time and you're not even sure you have a real relationship with him at all. Listen, God's word is clear. None of us deserve one. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. That's what, that's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life. While we all have gone astray, the Bible tells us that the Father has taken your sins, my sins, the sins of the world, and placed them upon Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, suffering the wrath of God upon sin for you. Taking your penalty, my penalty. He was buried, and three days later, he physically got up and rose from the dead. He physically conquered sin and death in the grave. Forty days later, after spending time with his disciples, teaching them last things, he then ascended to heaven. And the Bible tells us that right now he is physically seated at the Father's right hand, 
And he offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you a right relationship with God. He offers you purpose. He offers you meaning. He offers you love. He offers you security. All for you if you will turn from your sin and trust Jesus. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to right now. I want to invite you right there in the quietness of your heart, whether you're in the room or you're listening online, to just bow before God and say, Lord, I know that I've sinned. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I can't earn it. But God, I believe that you love me. Jesus, I believe that you were tempted like I am, but you never sinned. And Jesus, I believe you took upon yourself the punishment, the wrath of God for me. And you defeated sin and death in the grave through your resurrection. And Jesus, right now, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I surrender my life to you. I want to follow you. Listen, if you've done that for the first time today, the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven are rejoicing. If you have come to him and you meant that, you understood it, and you've turned from your sins, and you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, you're trusting him and him alone to forgive you, to be your Lord. You're surrendering your life to him. If that's where you're at, the Bible says the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And I would like to rejoice with you. No one's looking around, just me and God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. But if you're in the room and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the first time today, would you just put your hand up and write back down? Anybody at all? Anybody? If you're listening online, send an email to the school. Reach out to me. Reach out to one of our other professors. You can find our, our contact information on our website. Just reach out to us. And let us know so that we can rejoice with you and help you in your new walk. But listen, if you've trusted Jesus, then don't leave this room knowing there's sin of any kind in your life. Just be cleansed and rejoice in it. Father, we come to you today. And God, we thank you that we don't have to figure these things out on our own. Because Lord, we'd be real confused. God, we confess that sometimes our experiences get the best of us. Lord, we confess that too many times we reason our way around your word. And God, sometimes we let our emotions drive us. But Lord, forgive us. Ground us in the inerrant, sufficient word of God. And Lord, may we dig into your word daily. Learn to study it, keeping every verse in its context, letting it speak to us, not reading into your word, but reading from it truth. And may we live in accordance with your truth. And it's in the holy and precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.